Hey, how we doing? Grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians 6. We're going to be uh, near completing the end of our study in Ephesians. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6. Everybody comfortable? I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Any of you guys ever have that terrible dream where you're given a speech in class or you're at work or you're at church, maybe preaching, and uh, you realize you're in your pajamas? You ever had that terrible dream? It's interesting. Um, growing up, when I got out of college, my first job, I wore a suit to work every day. The pastor at the church that I attended would be in a suit every week. And then they had these wonderful things called Casual Fridays. And so you got to dress down a little bit. And then when I was a pastor, I started, I'd wear a suit coat. And then I was in khakis. And then I was in jeans. I'm just going to see how far I can push this, okay? So it's important for me that you were laughing early and you weren't like, oh, no, old guy's losing it. He's not even aware of what he's doing. So I I do appreciate that. But uh, as we turn to Ephesians 6 this morning, we're going to be talking, Paul's going to be talking about our wardrobe. He's going to be talking about what we wear And it's interesting to understand Ephesians 6. We have to understand a little bit about the guy who's writing this letter, his circumstances, and the audience that is receiving his letter and reading it 2,000 years ago. Paul is writing from Rome. He's in prison. He's awaiting execution. If he wasn't in prison, he would be on the run. His life is in danger anywhere he goes throughout Asia Minor, um, every city where he's planted a church, many of them he's had to flee from. He's not safe anywhere he goes. The safest place for him is probably in prison. But he's living in terrible conditions. He's not free to go where he wants to go. And he is writing a church that he loves very much, that he had planted earlier in his ministry. He is alone. We read that from the end of 2 Timothy. He is cold. He is in need. I'm not anything like Paul. I can go where I want. I can travel unimpeded. unimpeded. My life isn't threatened. I have a comfortable home. There's, There's nothing like Paul that I experience on a day to day or week to week basis. The people that are reading the letter, um, they're hated in their community. They're being blamed for, uh, the economic woes of the city of Ephesus. Uh, Lies are being told about them. They are being told that um, because of the Lord's Supper, they're saying, well, no, these these new Christians, this new movement, the way, these people are actually cannibals. They eat flesh. Their lives are in danger. Nero has come into power by the time this book is written, and as you get closer to Rome and it crosses empire, Christians are being murdered, crucified, fed to lions, executed. Today, our faith is comfortable. We're relaxed. Our faith is casual. And and, and so the problem in understanding what Paul's going to write about in Ephesians 6 is, I'm not positive if Paul were to attend our service today or the members of the church in Ephesus were able to go forward in time 2,000 years and be here with us this morning, they'd be like, I don't think they're going to get it. They're going to miss what Paul's saying. Things are really different. They're asleep. They're in their pajamas. See, the imagery that Paul uses in Ephesians 6, it's very interesting. As he closes this letter, the imagery throughout this chapter is war. 
In other places, Paul describes the Christian faith or the Christian walk as being like a a boxer training for battle or a runner training for a race. In Ephesians 6, the imagery here is war. He's going to talk about putting on the full armor of God. Now, it's interesting. I was reading New York Times just this morning. They wrote an article that says since the 1990s, the last 30 years have been the most peaceful recorded years in the world's history. Now, we've had skirmishes, but we really haven't had anything that looks like a world war. And as they went back, they go, we can't remember a time where it's been so peaceful. Well, it doesn't feel that way today, does it, with what's going on in Ukraine? And we're 32 days into the war in Ukraine. And if we were honest with ourselves, we've been amazed at the imagery, maybe riveted to the news in the first week or in the first two weeks. But after 32 days, we're actually getting numbed by the coverage. The images don't impact us the same as they did just 30 days ago. We are going from concerned to casually concerned. And Paul is concerned for the church in Ephesus. He wants to remind his people that whether they realize it or not, they are engaged in a battle. They are at war. Ephesians 6 is a call to get dressed for battle. In essence, Take off the pajamas. The big idea this morning is simply this. Armor is only needed if you are engaged in the battle. Armor is only needed if you are engaged in the battle. So it's interesting. If you look at the war in Ukraine, one of the interesting things that's taken place is I think, do you believe that maybe Russia underestimated the Ukrainian people? They didn't know that there was going to be this heavy resolve, maybe the level of resistance. Is it possible that Russia um, underestimated the world's response, the level of sanctions, the level of isolation that they would be forced to experience economically? Well, it's, it's dangerous to go to war and underestimate your opponent. So what Paul does, even before he talks about the armor of God, he spends some time unpacking and giving us information about our enemy. Ukraine has been attacked by Russia on three fronts, by air, by land, and by sea. Satan attacks us, or evil or sin attacks us also on three fronts. The first of that is just by the world, by our culture. We're told in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world. 1 John 2, verses 5 and 16 say, For all of this world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. The the, the desires of the world and the desires of the Father, they're in constant conflict. So evil attacks through our culture. Our world doesn't think the way we're called to think as followers of Jesus Christ. Another front that we are attacked by sin or by evil is through our flesh. We're told in Matthew 7, verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things, they come from within and they defile a person. It's interesting, in, in, psycho- in psychology or sociology, people will debate, are, are, are we the result of nature or nurture? Is it our environment that has made us the way that we are, or is it our genetics that have made us the way that we are? As it relates to evil and sin, both. Our culture tempts us, thinks differently. 
But I got to tell you, even if we weren't in a culture, if we found ourselves on a desert island, we'd find a way to sin. Because we have a sin nature. We have sin bends. The sin is not just from our culture, but it's inside of us. It's our sinful nature or sinful bend. It's interesting. Ephesians 6 doesn't focus on our flesh. It doesn't focus on the world. It talks about a third front. This idea of the devil. Look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So as the text addresses this issue of the devil, the third front of evil's attack, let me explain for a minute. First thing you need to know about the devil is he is real. Last night as I was teaching, I said he is a person. And I don't mean to imply that he's human in any way. What I'm trying to say is that he is real. He, he's not some illusion. He's not some construct. He's not some representative of some philosophy. He's a created being. He's real. And even as I say that, it's like, so seriously, you like really believe that? You believe in a devil? Like the horns and stuff? No, I, I think it's been depicted a little odd. But no matter how Hollywood or our culture would depict the devil, that doesn't take away from the fact that he's real. And I don't know what you think about a devil, whether you believe in a real devil or not. Here's the truth. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. It matters what God's word says. And the disciples believed in a devil. The writers of the New Testament believed in the person or a devil. All New Testament writers mentioned the devil. Most importantly, Jesus believed in the devil. 15 separate times, he either speaks directly to the devil or references the existence of the devil. The Bible is clear, he exists. Though he's not human, he was an angel. He is celestial, he's a fallen angel. In Luke 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus has sent out 72 people in groups of two in front of him to go to the cities and spread the good news of the gospel. They're returning and giving him a report. Listen to what they say. So the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That, that's not just an allegory that Jesus is giving. He's remembering what he saw. He was there when Satan fell. And he's like, I remember. We're told in Revelation 12, I'll just read it to you, starting in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael, who is an angel, the archangel, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, that's Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But the dragon was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So, so mutiny breaks out in heaven. Some of the angelic beings, the celestial beings, and there is war in heaven between Satan and the devil and God. And the devil's thrown down to earth. What, what was the source of that war? What, what created the conflict? Isaiah describes it in Isaiah 14, verse 13. The issue, Lucifer, the devil, when he fell, the issue was pride says of Lucifer or the devil, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set 
I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. So Satan falls because of pride. His desire, be his own God. Be just like God. Another thing you need to know about Satan, because he was thrown down to earth, he's the God of this world. We're told in 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, speaking of unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 1 John 5.19 says it this way. It says, we know that we're from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So the current ruler of this earth, that's Satan. Okay? A couple other things you need to know. He's really well organized. Look at verse 12 of Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These different terms, rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces, they speak to order, they speak to rank. The word rulers, the King James Version calls that principalities. It it references Satan's generals who tend to be over countries, regions, cities. And under those generals, there's lieutenants and there's sergeants and there's privates, all different ranks, organized, ready for battle. That's why in verse 11 we read, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word schemes, again, in the King James, it's translated wiles of the devils, the trickery of the devil. The Greek word for schemes is methodius. It's where we get our word methods. So what Paul is warning, he says, listen, be aware of your enemy and understand his methods. So if Satan is One of the three-pronged attacks, the world, our flesh, and Satan individually with his legions of organized followers, how do they attack? What is their scheme? What are their methods? Well, the Bible's really clear. It gives us example after example. It says this in 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We've been given instruction. We know his strategy. Here's the main thing you have to know. Satan's a liar. Satan's a liar. John 8, says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Speaking of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Well, what does he lie about? I'll give you three things. He lies about God. He lies about God, about who he is, about what he said. And maybe the most powerful lie that he tells about God, he questions his character. We can go all the way back to Genesis 3, back to the garden with Adam and Eve. And we read in Genesis 3.1, as he's tempting Eve, he says this. And the tempter came and said to him, or I'm, I'm sorry, it says this. It said, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And then in verse 4 of chapter 3 of Genesis, the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what Satan is doing, he's saying, hey, see that beautiful tree that God placed in the garden that he told you not to eat of? Did he really say that? And if he said it, did he really mean it? And in saying it, was he doing that for your good or for your bad? 
Was he for you or against you? Is God a giver or is he a taker? Are his rules and the things that he's given you as instruction hindering your development? Or are they helping you? Satan lies about God. He also lies about us, about our identity. This is why Paul spends the first chapter of Ephesians 1 explaining who we are in Christ. In Christ you are forgiven. In Christ you are adopted. In Christ you are sealed. In Christ you have an inheritance. All of this language, this is who you are if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Why would he do that? Because he understands that Satan, his strategy is to attack our identity. Well, well can you prove that? Yes, I can. It says in Matthew 4, verse 3, Jesus has just been baptized. John the, bapti uh, John the Baptist has baptized Jesus. A voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then it says he immediately goes to the wilderness for 40 days where he's tempted by the devil. Listen to how the devil tempts him. Comes in Matthew 4, verse 3 with his first temptation. It says the, temp the tempter came and said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Two verses later in Matthew 4, 5, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. Both temptations, you see how they start? If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. God had just spoken from heaven, this is my beloved son. This seems like a stupid strategy to play on Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? Like, is Jesus going to go, am I really the son of God? Do you think he's going to forget in that moment? Seems crazy to us sitting here today that Satan would attack Jesus' identity as one of God's children, but he attacks ours all the time, and we fall for it. God doesn't love you. He loves some future version of you. When you get all your stuff together, God's not for you. God's not in you. Are, you. are you even saved? Satan lies about God. He lies about us. Here's a third one. He lies about cause and effect. That passage that we looked at in Revelation about the war in heaven, in that passage, the Satan is called the deceiver. In Galatians 6, 7, our, in instruction to the believer, it says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. What you plant, you're going to harvest. And Satan comes along and says, nobody's going to see. Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to get hurt. You're not going to harvest what you plant. He lies about cause, cause and effect. And we've said often here, the problem with sin is you enter down a path and you don't realize that sin will take you farther than what you, where you want to go and it'll cost you more than you're willing to pay. Satan's goal as our enemy is to discourage, disable, and destroy. He has no conscience, no compassion, no remorse, and no morals. We're at war. We might be comfortable. We might think we're relaxed. Paul is saying, whether you realize it or not, all around us there is a war. Every battle, every inch of this universe is contested. And the thing that makes the difference on what side of this battle that you're on, because there's no Switzerland, there's no neutrality in this. You're either with Jesus or you're against. What you do with Jesus makes all the difference. It determines what side you're on. 
So one of the things, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to know what your objective is in this battle. Look at verse 11 of Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Look down at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, verse 14, stand therefore. Are you guys picking up an objective or a theme? You guys seeing it in the text? What are we called to do? We're called to stand. We're called to stand firm. One more thing I need to tell you about the devil C.S. Lewis said, there's two equal and opposite errors, two mistakes that we can make when we consider our adversary, the devil. One is to not give him enough credit. It's interesting. God wants to be fully known by his children. Come to me. Come to me. I wanted it to be in relationship. Satan hides in the shadows. If he had his way, we'd just ignore him. Wouldn't talk about him. Would pretend that he doesn't exist. There's two mistakes that you can make. One is to downplay Satan and give him no acknowledgement. And the other word is an unhealthy and exaggerated interest in him. Here's what you need to know. One more thing about Satan. Satan's defeated already. He's already defeated. I'll show you that in the text. He is not infinite in power. He can't do whatever he wants to do. He doesn't know everything. He can't be everywhere at one time. Simply stated, today, Satan is on a leash. God's got him by the collar. He can't do anything that God does not give him permission to do. It's interesting in John 12, Jesus is preparing to go to the cross And in speaking of what's going to happen at the cross, he says in John 12, he says, the ruler of this world has been cast out. We go on and we read, at the end of the age, when Christ returns again, there is one last uprising. There is going to be a a person that comes on the scene by the name of Antichrist. He's going to be empowered by Satan. It's going to be one last clash, one last conflict. And it's interesting, we can read in 2 Thessalonians how that conflict ends. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, hear this, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So Satan is energizing Antichrist with all of his power. Jesus shows up on the scene. There's a big battle. It's like at the end of a Marvel comic. It goes on for 20 minutes. It's no. How does Jesus defeat him? He shows up. (laughs) He speaks the word and he's defeated. He says it is finished and Satan is done. In Colossians 2, verse 13, listen to what it says. Speaking of the cross, writing to believers, Paul writes this. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It goes on and says, this he set aside, he nailed it to the cross. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
Okay, Satan is still here. He is still active in our world. Christ's second return has not happened. But in this season, you need to know this. Jesus Christ, by what he accomplished on the cross, has already put all of the ranks of evil to open shame. They're defeated because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And this has huge implications for us in this room today. It says this in 1 John 4, 4, little children... Speaking to believers, he says, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, no temptation has overtaken us that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not tempt us beyond our ability. But with every temptation, there comes a way of escape. So this enemy, Satan, already defeated. And we are never left in a position where we don't have the power to defeat him. James 4, 7 says it's this simply. You're worried about Satan? How, how, how do we battle back against? How do we stand firm? Listen to James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. <laughs> flee from you. If we resist the devil, he's going to run. How do we resist the devil? Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Oh, there's that word again, submit. Yeah, you yield your will. You say, God, I'm going to do what you've called us to do. Listen, all of us want to be blessed by God. We want to be empowered in this battle. We want to be enriched by God. You know how you get there? You submit. We're in a battle. We're in a war. Do what you're told. Know what keeps you strong. If you're keeping notes, know what keeps you strong. We're going to go through the armor just kind of one by one real quickly. I wish I had more time to develop it. But something even before we look at the individual items, please note as you look in the text, before every item, there's this word. It either says put on or take up. That's an action word on our part. It doesn't say just stand there and God will equip you. It's telling us to be active. Like these are decisions and choices that we've got to make to arm ourselves for the battle. Also notice, put on the armor, verse 11, of God. Okay? It's not our armor, verse 13. Take up, or, or therefore take up the whole armor of God. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This, this thing that we battle against, we're going to need God's strength. So look at verse 14. It says this. It says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Okay? So where we start is with the imagery here of armor is the belt. It's the belt of truth. Um, what, what happens, Nick, if you forget to wear a belt in the morning? Nothing happens to you? That's because you're skinny and you have hips that hold up your pants. Now, if you're more pear-shaped like some of us, what happens if us pear people, we forget to wear a belt? you guys know what happens? Our pants fall down. Okay? You don't want to be in battle when your pants fall down. That's like the worst. And so what he's saying is the first thing in the list is the belt of truth. Now, we know that Jesus is truth. We're told that in John 14, 6. That, is, that God's word is truth, John 17, 17. That Jesus testified to the truth, John 18, 37. And that the truth sets us apart from the world, also John 17, 17. 
So when I talk about truth, please understand, I'm not talking about my truth. I'm not talking about your truth. I'm not talking about culture's truth. I'm talking about a truth that endures the test of time. Where, where, where do we go to get truth that is enduring, that stands the test of time? Where would we go? Do you guys know? Did you say Oprah? No. Okay, not, not Oprah, okay? Not Dr. Phil. Where do we go to get truth that endures? God's word. God's word is truth. Yeah, but I don't have my Bible with me. Well, we'll phone a friend that's going to give you godly counsel. Not that friend that all of us have, the friend that's easy to find, that's going to tell you, hey, just do what makes you happy in the moment. That guy's easy. He's sitting at every bar in town. Do whatever makes you happy. That's the most important thing. Not that guy. Enduring truth. Truth that will last, that's for our good. Don't go into battle without knowing God's word. Don't go into battle without knowing Jesus. Don't go into battle without some other soldiers around you who can encourage you in God's word. Here's the second thing, verse 14. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. It's interesting. Several years ago, I was in Iraq. I was just there as a businessman, but I was in, I flew into Baghdad. And as you fly into Baghdad, I've told this story before, but you fly in real high over the airport because you can't go low until you're over controlled territory. And then you do this corkscrew landing and pull out of it to land at Baghdad. It's an awesome experience, particularly if you haven't been pre-warned. You just think you're crashing. You don't know what's going on. That was my situation. So pull out. I'm a little shaky already from the landing. I get out of the plane and I'm immediately given bulletproof vest, a helmet, handed an AR something, and they go, you know how to shoot this, right? No. So they give me a quick lesson in how to handle this gun. And then they say, okay, we're going to put you in an armored Humvee. And we got to go drive down this thing called the Irish Highway. It connects the airport to the green zone. It's the most dangerous road in the world. And no matter what happens, don't leave your vehicle. You do not want to get taken captive. Die first. Okay. If you hit an explosive, stay with your vehicle Defend yourself with the gun. Don't get taken. Awesome. Drive down the road. Nothing happens. We get into the green zone. I go to sleep. I get up the next morning. We're going back out into Baghdad, leaving the green zone. And a Marine comes up to me, looks at me in my bulletproof vest, and just slams his forearm against my chest. I go flying back like three feet. I'm like, what in the world? He goes, stay right there. And I stayed right there. I didn't move an inch. And he comes back in just a couple minutes and he takes my vest and he lifts two Velcro things and he slides two big metal plates into the vest and then re-Velcros it. A bulletproof vest without the bulletproof part, it's just a sweater. <laughs> I didn't know. I thought it was like Kevlar or something. I thought it was light, but it, I didn't know. I'm like, probably needed that last night, right? He's like, oh yeah, that was a Heads are going to roll on that one. Why is a breastplate important? It protects your heart. There's some vital organs there that it's protecting. But it's the breastplate of righteousness, and it's interesting. Theologians that argue, is it our righteousness, our good works, or is it Christ's righteousness? Big argument. Let me settle it for you both. At the cross, Christ's righteousness is imputed. That's the word, imputed to us. When we 
place our faith, when we repent, give our lives to Jesus, he gets our sin, pays for it on the cross, we get his righteousness. But after we are saved, it is righteousness is also imparted to us. Because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we can make good choices. We can choose to be obedient. It's both. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15, and as for shoes for your feet, have put on the readiness given by the gospel of grace. This gospel of peace, or this gospel of peace, it's the good news that we have peace with God, that we're reconciled, that we're no longer enemies. Satan's going to lie to you about this. No, 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 because of your sin, you're separated from God. You, he hasn't forgiven you. He hasn't forgotten everything that you've done. And it's nonsense. We have the gospel of peace that we are reconciled to our heavenly father. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Shield of faith. Our faith definition here is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel because God promises a good result. So faith involves just not what we believe, believing the word of God, but also what we do, acting upon it. And if Satan is going to attack, he's going to attack not just what we believe, but what we do, both sides of that faith equation. We can't rely on our own feelings, our own desires to determine our actions. We have to compare it against God's word. We have to compare it against godly counsel, the shield of faith. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Satan loves to play mind games. He's going to lie to us. He's going to create doubt. Is God really good? Is he really for us? Is the Bible really true? Can we count on his promises? All these questions stem from doubt. So the helmet of salvation is to protect from the doubt that Satan wants to place in our heads. Why would salvation be the helmet? Here's what I would argue. Because we need to be reminding ourselves of the gospel and of our salvation on a regular basis. If, if you attend Harvest, you should hear every week in every message something about the cross and our need for a Savior and the fact that Jesus is the Savior and that Jesus took our place. That should be a constant theme. You should get fed that every week. By the way, is once a week enough? How often do you need to hear the gospel? I heard somebody say every day. Well, not me. I'm a pastor. I don't need it every day. Like every third day, you think that would be enough for me? No, no, no. Every day. I have to remind myself of the gospel every day. Hey, I'm a child of the king. This battle that's raging all around us, the craziness I see in our culture, I'm on the winning team. Jesus is coming back. He's going to say it's finished. I'm forgiven. I've been given the strength to defeat sin in this moment. I don't have to choose to continue to follow the patterns that always lead to despair. The helmet of salvation and 17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the weapon that is mentioned. The other is what you put on to defend. This is the weapon. And I would just like to point out the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It defeats all three dimensions of Satan's attack. As it relates to his attack from the world. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we transform our minds? We put our minds in God's word. 
It, it fights the lies of our culture. It defends us against our flesh. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and minds, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That evil that we have inside of us is confronted by the truth of the word of God, and it exposes the intent of our heart. And it is powerful against the devil. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness in Matthew 4, in response to every temptation, he quotes scripture. In 2013, or actually 2012, when we started to renovate this building, um, this building was dark. It just felt oppressed in this space. How many of you were here when we renovated this room? Some of you, I see some hands. Do you, do you guys remember what we did? We ripped out the pews because they were yucky, okay? And then we ripped out the carpet and we ripped the carpet off the stage. Do you remember what we did before we started rebuilding the room? Scripture. All over the floors, up and down the aisles, all over the cafe, all over the nurseries, all over the floors in the high school, the junior high rooms. You think that was just symbolic? No, it was important to us. But nobody sees it. I know, others know, that every time I preach here, I'm standing on the word of God. It's powerful against the devil. People will walk in here occasionally, they'll be like, man, I just love your church. I feel the presence of the Lord in there. I'm like, should have been here eight years ago. Felt way different. God's word has power. It is our sword. As we close, 1 John 3.13. I know we're closing because he's playing. 1 John 3.13. Do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Brothers, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Ephesians 6.18, right from our text. To that end, keep alert. Be strong. Stand firm. Don't be surprised. You're in a battle. Maybe you're just too comfortable. Maybe it's time to take off the pajamas, hey? And understand we're in an eternal struggle, a cosmic conflict. And because our general is Jesus Christ, we're on the winning team. Let's act with that confidence. Let that be our hope. Stand firm. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for uh, your word. And I thank you that Paul was so bold to use this analogy to maybe wake us up from our slumber. Father, it can be discouraging sometimes in the midst of the battle when we look around us and see what's going on with our culture, what's going on in our families, what's going on in the news, what's going on in Ukraine. And Father, we long for peace. And we long for that day when you return and you say it's done and it's done. Father, until that day, keep us strong. Help us to stand firm. It's in your name we pray. Amen.